what I've learned in my past experiences, when you go from company to company, everyone's different and you really have to be open to understanding what's going to work there and what's not. Just because it worked at Amgen and Gilead doesn't mean it's going to work right at Biomarin or AstraZeneca, wherever it is. So you really have to take a look at the corporate culture and make sure one, that person kind of fits in, two, that they're flexible enough to say, hey, it's not just, this is the way it has to be. Um, I think the last thing you want to do in procurement is be that bull in the china shop and just kind of force feed people things because that never goes over well. I don't know a lot of people who appreciate that. So just having somebody who really is open, flexible, will listen and can come up with, I think, good ideas and, you know, get people's buy-in, right? So part of it is selling yourself. So people who enjoy talking with other people and networking, I think is something definitely needed. Hey, this is Danny, and welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. You know, we're not just another boring finance or procurement podcast. We explore the sometimes challenging stories and learnings when people, spend, and organizations meet, and how to drive sustainable growth while still balancing control and agility. We have vulnerable, honest, and raw conversations with only the most forward-thinking CFOs, finance executives, and procurement leaders who are challenging the status quo, that the way we've done it is just not enough. This is Spend Culture Stories. Hi, everybody. This is Danny, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today, we have another great procurement leader for you. Her name is Dana Small. She is the current Senior Category Manager, Head of Global Commercial Global Strategic Sourcing, ooh, that's a mouthful, at BioMarin Pharmaceuticals. Dana has over 13 years of experience in finance, with 10 supporting the sales and marketing function, including FP&A and Global Category Management Procurement Sourcing, and over 17 years of experience within the pharmaceutical biotech industry. She's also known affectionately as Miss Category Management on LinkedIn. And for those of you who are active on LinkedIn, Dana is also a blogger and public speaker who often writes about her views and learnings with the audience on LinkedIn and also on her website. You can visit her at our website at MissCategoryManagement.com. Dana, I'm super excited to welcome you on the show today. Just to start us off, I love how you are a fellow woman in procurement and that you're part of the advancement of the Women in Procurement Group. And you've been working in the procurement and supply chain sector for quite some time now. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges with change management within the sector. But what do you think some of the biggest things that get in the way of change? I chatted with other procurement leaders like Daniel Barnes and James Meads in the last few episodes. And they mentioned that the biggest changes has to do with technological change management and working with stakeholders. What are your thoughts on this? It's tough. You know, there's a lot of things I think we can change, but being a woman isn't one of them. And so you just have to pick your battles and figure out ways around it and be creative and find the right people to support you, right? I've found in my career, if you can find other good women and other good support systems, then it can go a long way. Absolutely. I think that mentorship aspect is so important because like, you know, personally, I'm also um, a young business professional, right? And sometimes when I go into organizations, there tends to be this air of competition sometimes when you Mm -hmm. talk to women, but it's really about uplifting each other, right? Because I think when one person wins, everybody wins. It's kind of that camaraderie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, and you have to have that, right? And there are some women who do view it as a battle. Like if you're a woman, 
if you're getting ahead, then I'm not getting ahead. So we got to kind of go for it. But I don't view it that way. I view you definitely support as, like you said, lifting people up is win-win. And um, that's about the only way to do it to be successful. Totally. And how do you think um, organizations can track more young women in procurement? Like, what do you think they could do? Or I guess what worked for you? How did they attract you? (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting. I think for me, being in finance and enjoying analysis and numbers is one thing. I think, you know, younger kids and women, I think I read today about LinkedIn, getting into science and STEM and just motivating them to do things of that sort, where even if they feel like they're outnumbered, um, to just still go ahead and do it. It's, it's, you know, it's tough to be outnumbered at the same time. It's a nice little niche you can find for yourself, which is kind of nice too, right? So mm-hmm. and motivating, I think, women to come to procurement. Um, I don't know, maybe it's the negotiations. It's the fun of that. Or it's, you know, feeling like you're a shopper all the time. <laughs> you're buying things constantly, right? That's kind of some of the things I like. Um, but I definitely think the younger generation likes the differences of all the projects and how it all can be different. Um So I think, you know, just showing some of the aspects that it's not one of these jobs. The reason I left my other jobs was it's not the same thing over and over and over. Every day Mm is something new, every supplier is something new, right? So it's always a challenge. And I think having that ongoing challenge and changes really can be attractive, I think, to a lot of women. That's true. You're kind of like, you know, having um, a wallet that's not yours and you're spending money in the right way. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great way to put it. Because I think most of us aren't as cost conscious when we leave because we're so cost conscious at work. Um, I think my husband would agree with that. How do you do this for a living? You don't negotiate anything. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just too tired of negotiating. (laughs) Leave it at the day job, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like you worked in biotech also for many years, and I've personally found biotech to be a really interesting sector because, you know, you spend a lot of lot of money, right? And sometimes like the the product in itself, it might not actually work. You know, that's kind of the reality of the situation. Sure. So what are kind of the main categories of spend that you were in charge of? And how does this kind of um, sector affect your decision making? Sure. So the main categories I've had is pretty much everything now under sales and marketing. So advertising media, call centers, market research, data, meeting events, uh, sales support, field support, you know, everything under the sun. I've also done some like professional services, management consulting, things supporting finance. But for me, it's interesting in biotech, the sales and marketing function has a lot of regulations. So you have to be very thoughtful when you go through RFPs to make sure there's no conflicts of interest. You have to think about, you know, all the different uh, revisions that'll go through with regulatory and having suppliers who can do things of that sort. I will say it is very different depending on the biotech or pharma you're at. The larger ones have great procurement and sourcing groups and they're robust and, you know, they have, you know, great SOPs in place and just really robust and big teams. Whereas some of the smaller or newer companies that I've been at recently, 
Um, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. It's just, I mean, people are like, oh, I'm going to buy this. Oh, I'm going to add this. Oh, no. I'm gonna do this. And there's nothing stopping them. Right. And so it's a whole different set of challenges when you're at a big pharma with huge budgets and everybody's knocking down your door to a small biotech. And now I'm having people like, no, we don't need to be in your RFP. You're too small. We don't want to participate. It's the ROI isn't there for them. Right. We're too small. Yeah. We don't have large enough spend. So it's interesting to kind of see across pharma, how that, you know, all the regulations and things that can happen, black box warnings, new package inserts, they have to update labels, how that comes through with the commercial. I'd always wonder, I'm like, why don't we spend so much money on print? And, oh yeah, we had six <laughs> label changes and updates and you have to reprint oh, everything, no. you know, for the sixth time this year. So it's interesting to see how that can kind of play out and you know, the focus really, for the most part, at the places I've been at is on the patient. And so majority of spend and time is focused on the patient and not as much as, you know, like a different brand or an alcohol is going to be, you know, considered for something else. We really care about people's lives. And at the end of the day, it's about the science. So it's an interesting field and I enjoy it, I think, because of my background, right, in biology. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good fit for me. <laughs> It's really awesome because you can kind of relate to that and also the finance end and finally the procurement end, right? You got all three in there. Yeah, I understand the industry, which makes it 10 times easier for me, I think, when you know, you're know you talking with people and what they do in their business is in the commercial side and everything else. That's for sure. Are there any challenges that you face in your role that you find um, are harder to navigate? It's interesting. Like I said, sometimes the submissions through like a PRC or PRB process, right? So regulation that can always throw kind of a wrench in with advertising agencies, because what you get happening is they'll submit something. It has to go through that. And then legal and regulatory will come back and say, nope, you can't say this, this, and this. Oh my gosh. So they got to redo it, right? So got to rework it and then they'll resubmit it. Nope. You got to do this. So what ends up happening is rework just goes exponential, right? And so trying to contain those things, which you really don't have much control over, is really tough. And you have to somehow try to figure, bake it in the budget or bake it in what they're doing and the scope of work without it becoming too large. And, you know, I've seen uh, certain brands burn through their budgets just on rework. I mean, it's not even halfway through the year and they're already through their budget because they can't agree eternally and then regulatory is not happy and then legal is uh -oh. not happy. So it's one of those things where it's definitely like a little wrench that I think might be easier in other industries where you don't have to worry about what you say and what you can't say and what images you can show and can't show and how sensitive you really need to be for the consumer. I can kind of feel that pain. You know, I worked in PR for so many years and it's the same thing, you know, on that blocker, right? For a lot of people where they submit something to me, they're like, is this okay? I'm like, unfortunately not. You're not going to get this through. <laughs> so I'm on the other th side of that situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's tough, but it definitely can make for an interesting experience. And, you know, you got to get kind of your creative juices going to try to figure out solutions to those problems, right? It's not just as simple as saying, oh, you can only do two reworks. You can only redo this twice because sometimes that's just not reality. And it's going to take three, four sessions for it to go around and get approved by regulatory. Yeah, you can't really help that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's also interesting because in Filetech too, um, they're scientists, right? They don't want to deal with the whole processes around purchasing or procurement. They just want to get their items and do their jobs. 
Yes, even more so <laughs> on the R and D side. There's a lot of hand holding I know that goes on uh, with some of the R and D counterparts because they are very science based, and they're like, "I just need X. What are you guys talking about? Like RFO? What is that? <laughs> exactly." And they're like, "Just do it for me. It's okay." You know? So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of those examples too with the clients that we work with at biotech companies where they're like, oh, why do we need a requisition? Why do we need a purchase order? Like, what is that? Can we just um, get the test tubes? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because I have a colleague of mine who we have a lot of overlap and she's in the R&D and I'm like, you guys really do a lot of hand holding with these guys, don't you? I'm like, I don't do any of this. She's like, oh yeah, oh yes. But you know, it's who the business partners are, right? So you can't really expect somebody super smart in science to be well-versed in all parts of the business. So I suppose it's for, I suppose it's for the best, right? <laughs> it is important. They're focusing. You guys are doing the rest of it, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about negotiation. I know we kind of touched on that. Of course, you're really good at figuring out the win-win point and making sure both parties are happy. So what are some tips that you have for effective negotiation, whether it be for a contract or even just maybe in your professional life? Yeah. So there are tons of really good books and courses out there. One of them that I actually recently got to attend was Chris Voss has this book. It's Negotiating Like Your Life Depended On. And he's an ex-FBI crisis negotiator, which is super cool. And I saw he had in-person training. And so it was really cool to go there. And they, you know, you can volunteer and you got to think on your feet and you can see how different aspects of psychology and everything really plays into it. And I took a couple of my coworkers with me and it was a really good experience. So for me, I'll reread that book so many times and I'll, you know, kind of remember those lessons and just constantly try to update myself with new thoughts and, okay, this book was great. What else is out there? What other approaches are there to really figure out what's best for me? Um, So Mm -hmm. just kind of keeping up on my reading and intelligence. (laughs) That is super cool that you were able to attend in person. Like I've heard a lot of great thing about that book. And I was like, oh, I wish I lived in the States so I can attend one of those. It's one of the things where, or at least for me, I had this like light bulb, like literal light bulb. You're like, oh my God, I get it now. This makes so much sense. This is it. I get it now. So for me, that's what clicked for me. I know not everybody, I think it clicks for, but I think it's also the simplicity of the message too, and how they talk about negotiation and step you through it. It's just a great course. I would love to do it again. It was super cool to meet them. The entire team that they have with them are amazing. And so it was really, it was a cool experience. So I would definitely suggest if people have the ability to go do something like that, do it. Was that like a company event or was that something that you organized? That was something that I found because I was so obsessed with the book. (laughs) (laughs) I was like stalking this guy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he actually, you know, I'm like, let me find out more about him. And this book's so great. Then I see he's like, oh, he's going on tours. Oh, okay. Oh, he's going to be in San Francisco. And I'm like, oh my God, I got so excited. So I went out of my way to get myself to be able to go and a couple of my coworkers to go with me to get the budget for that. So yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, It's always great. Like working in an organization that agrees with you when you want to be passionate about something, when you want to learn something, they're like, you know what, go for it. Right. Exactly. And that they supported it, which I thought was amazing because we do have, you know, the internal training and negotiations, but I don't think you get the same value as when you actually can get away from your work and you're in a different environment with different people. You don't have like everybody from your organization, right? 
it's a good kind of separation, I think, especially with negotiations that's pretty much warranted. Do you think it also helped you with your negotiating your personal life and also like for salary bumps or things like that? Yeah, you know, I think it definitely has helped me when I think about purchasing my house and contracts and things of that sort. But I will say sometimes I am just kind of tired at the end of the day. And so sometimes I won't even negotiate like with my husband. I'll just feel like, just okay, do it. Fine. <laughs> Whatever. Like I'm not, like I've had too much today. I don't want to argue. I don't want to have to think about this. But I think for big purchases and things of that sort, it definitely comes in handy to you know, really understand the psychology, fear of loss and all of those things. So especially when it came to negotiating this house, it was a big purchase for us and there was a lot involved. So it's definitely useful for that. I should definitely check that out. And I'll maybe link the book here in the blog post below for any of the listeners that want to check it out. I've heard great things, but I haven't actually finished it. So that's definitely now in my list. <laughs> it's an audiobook too, so. <laughs> that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about procurement horror stories, because you've kind of said a few funny stories that, you know, you've been you've seen yeah. before. People love these. You know, every time we have um, someone from procurement come on, they always want to hear this. I know Kelly Barner, she said a lot of really funny ones. So tell me a procurement horror story that you've seen personally in your career and what did you learn from it? So it's interesting. When I first started, I probably had more horror stories than I could think of, but this one's probably the best one because I think it was so shocking to me at the time that I just couldn't believe it was happening. So Basically, we had a provider who it's called PDR, where you put your products in so patients or physicians can go in and see, here's, you know, a desk reference of your drugs and here's, you know, all the information supporting it. Well, the project was really like, hey, do we need to put all of our drugs in here? And I went through and found out not all the major pharmas were putting all of them. And this was, you know couple million dollars to spend. It wasn't small by any means. And so I kept going back to the supplier and saying, can you give me tiered pricing? So we know maybe we only want to do two, maybe one to five. We don't know, but can you just give me something? And I probably had five phone calls, multiple email messages. And I, it was like a month and a half later and I still could not get anything. And so finally my boss is like, let's get on a call with our business partner and the person you've been talking with and their VP. And we got on the call. The woman said, you've never asked me for this. Oh, no. My blood was just starting to boil. And I was like, I'll send you the five emails <laughs> and six follow-ups if you want. And my boss is like, calm down, calm down. And it was oh, just like one of those things where I couldn't, the blatant lying I had never experienced in my life. And I understand why she was doing it now, but I was so new. I was like, people lie. People are, she's just going to say she never talked to me. This is amazing. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I love the email. So I think that's one of those things where I was like completely caught off guard. And now I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, they're probably going to do something like this, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm kind of prepared for it. Where then when I first started, I was like, people really do things like this. This is amazing. So yeah, it's, it's funny. That's crazy. Sad. I mean, it was just weird. Um, but I get it, you know, loss of revenue. So um, that can provoke people to do things. But yeah, I'm not one of those people who can take like just blatantly lying about what I've done and what I said. So um, right. it with me. <laughs> Especially because like the audit show is really there, right? Like, you got the emails. It's not like you were on your phone, right? And you didn't record it. 
then they would have gotten away with it. But now yeah. it's like, I clearly have evidence. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of the times, and what I've learned from it is every time you have a phone call, you follow up with an email. That is like the key lesson that I have learned. Or you let it go to voicemail. Certain times, like I'll make sure that they left a message and then I can call them back, have the conversation and say, hey, based on, called you back on this conversation, just document everything because you can easily kind of get caught off guard if you don't. And if you're not organized, then you can't find the email. So um, it definitely has led me to be a little bit more organized with my emails and suppliers and making sure I have everything together. So it happens again, I'm a little bit more prepared. (laughs) That's actually a really good tip. I should start um, implementing that because sometimes when I have calls with people and there's actionables, right? It's always like, oh, I, I didn't know that you mentioned that. So following up right away with an email, I think that's a really good tip. Especially when it's fresh, right? If you don't do it when it's fresh, you'll tend to forget things. And so for me, it's like the first thing I try to knock out, I take notes and write it. And you know, a lot of times people are lazy and don't want to do it. And the beauty of you doing it is that you're the one writing it. And so you can kind of put your perception on it and then just say, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and a lot of times people just don't even want to do that, even if you are wrong. So it really puts the ball in your court and gives you, you know, that email trail and support. People can tell you, no, you never asked me this. Okay. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's always really funny too. Sometimes um, when we talk to, especially tech companies, right? They might not have like a designated procurement person. So, so they're so used to sending emails to like the CEO or I don't know, someone else in the organization saying, can I buy this? Can I buy this? Right. So, and then the CEO would be like, oh, but I didn't actually get your email. They're like, oh, too late. I already bought it with my company credit card. We're like, no, like this is why you need a sort of system that's beyond email. Right? It's not going to work. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely, it's um, one of those things, tracking definitely helps sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. So a lot of the listeners of this podcast, you know, they're in smaller organizations, so they might not be in like a big pharma organization like yours. So what would you kind of suggest for them to really um, build up a healthy spend culture if they're kind of a little bit smaller, maybe they just started looking for a procurement leader to lead all of this um, strategic side of procurement? Yeah. So I think somebody who's flexible, right? If you get somebody who's rigid and like, nope, this is the way we did it at our job before. This is how you have to do it. This is how you have to do it. It doesn't always work. What I've learned in my past experiences, when you go from company to company, everyone's different and you really have to be open to understanding what's going to work there and what's not. Just because it worked at Amgen and Gilead doesn't mean it's going to work, right, at Biomarin or AstraZeneca, wherever it is. So you really have to take a look at the corporate culture and make sure, one, that person kind of fits in, two, that they're flexible enough to say, hey, it's not just, this is the way it has to be. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do in procurement is be that bull in the china shop and just kind of force feed people things because that never goes over well. I don't know a lot of people who appreciate that. So just having somebody who really is open, flexible, will listen and can come up with, I think, good ideas and, you know, get people's buy-in, right? So part of it is selling yourself. So people who enjoy talking with other people and networking, I think is something definitely needed versus not that introverts can't do the job because there's tons of them, they do them fine. But, you know, somebody, if you really have a hard sell and it's a really new organization, you really want to get out there. Somebody who's super proactive, super can sell themselves, has a great elevator pitch and, uh, you know, can do it quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've always wondered that, by the way. Maybe I should interview a introverted procurement leader next and <laughs> get their thoughts on this. Because I can tell you're super extroverted. So I wonder how they how they deal with this. They would probably hate me. I think that's part of the reason why I left the lab because they were very extremely introverted, and I'd be like, "Hey, what's going on? Let's you yeah, not today." And they're like, Shh. <laughs> "I'm doing work. We're in the lab. You can't." <laughs> Okay. Oh. I'm like, All right, then. I guess I don't fit in here. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm sure you bring a lot of like fun and positivity into the team too, especially when they've gone through a whole day of doing whatever they're doing, and then you come over and check in, right? Yeah, I try to. I try to add some fun, and you know, even with my blog, I try to be a little bit of a smart ass because that's kind of my <laughs> personality, right? And if I can make you laugh and forget about how crappy the day was even more power right laughing is a good cure also yeah I try to make sure we all have a good time I love that and I think like that's what's kind of needed in the professional world you know there's so much content out there that even though it's insightful it's kind of boring no one kind of wants to read that you don't want to get lectured to you want to listen to you know a fun conversation seeing people have a good time and learn something while you're at it Exactly. And I think that's why I enjoy kind of the writing style that I've come up with in the blog, because I can be somewhat of a smart ass. Uh, <laughs> and either you like it or you don't. You don't have to read it again if you hate it, right? But for the people who want a little bit more, it's a dry topic, right? Some of the business stuff is super dry and super boring. There's not a lot of procurement people out there like, I love this. Let me blog about it, right? And you, you just don't see it. And I think if you can make it a little bit more entertaining and tell the stories in there. Um, people will read it, but you can still be have some of the serious undertones too, right? Like here's some good information for you. Here's what I've learned. Here's a couple bad experiences. <laughs> Make sure you document everything, right? So mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely something I think is super useful and there's a space there for it. And I just don't see a lot of people doing it, unfortunately. I know, right? I feel like that's such an untapped territory. And I think that's really where the future of business content is going to go. It's going to be at the same time uplifting and, you know, entertaining, but also very informative. So I'm really glad that you're kind of taking the steps for that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone wants to check out Dana's blog and website, um, you can visit her at miscategorymanagement.com. I'll link that in below. So, you know, you don't have to go look for it. <laughs> <laughs> so Dana, I want to also ask one last question before we end the podcast for today. So what was the most proudest moment in your career thus far? I'd have to say, it's interesting. When I was thinking about this question, I was like, oh, I had this great win early on in my career. And I'm like, no, that's not it. It was savings related. And I'm like, what really I think has struck me lately is what my networking and research has been able to do for me and for my company, right? So whereas before when I was younger and I was like, oh, networking, oh, I got to talk to people like, oh my God, you know, rolling my eyes and, you know, these are current partners. Why don't I need to talk to them? I actually had a situation where we had an incumbent was PR, um, but we weren't using them for, they were an umbrella company for some of their creative and strategy. And so we had a major RFP for a new vendor for a new product and that was my suggestion to bring them in. I knew they had a great creative agency underneath them and they had a uphill battle to climb because they had to go against all the other incumbents that were already working. Right. And yeah. so to me, it's amazing. Like just that little networking. And it's funny that my business partner will say, yes, the cheap wine and horrible chicken we had that night really turned into something <laughs> great, but it's true. I mean, it's amazing. Cause in my earlier career, I'd been like, ah, you know, I'm not going to do this, but 
now I'm like, oh, I'll take every phone call because I don't know what's around the next corner or who could, you know, provide us with the best services. That's so true. Had I not talked to, you know, this guy at the event, I wouldn't have brought them in and we would have had, you know, one of the incumbents and it would have been just business as usual. But it's amazing that they were able to come in and win a really big book of business above everybody else who had already worked with us, who all had the advantage, right? So um, not even that advantage, advantage of people like, oh, I'm bringing in my preferred one, I'm a new employee. We brought those in too, but they still beat them out, right? And that's when you have those relationships, that's really hard to do. So I think having that win and having that communication with them and having it be somebody I suggested, I think is one of the feel like a good accomplishment on both sides. I feel like it's a really good partnership. And so that's why I think it's one of the proudest things that I've done is to be able to create that partnership between the brands and the supplier. That is so amazing. And, you know, I think a lot of people tend to forget that people don't buy from companies. They buy from people, right? And the same way, you don't look for suppliers per se. You look for people that you can trust and their products that you can trust. Exactly. And I think, especially with the agency world, you know, they work with them day in, day out. And so Mm -hmm. you really, there's, you know, part of the RFP process where it's like, do we vibe with the team? Right. (laughs) I mean, that's literally one of the qualifications. It's like, how cohesive are they? I mean, I've seen agencies come in and they're fighting with each other. So it is the people. And, you know, to have somebody who, oh, we have pre-existing relationships, normally that'll go straight to them because they trust them, right? To do mm-hmm. the strategy and creative work and they can count on them. So coming in and taking on somebody brand new for a new product was really a success in my my book. That's amazing. And congratulations for that too. And I'm sure like, you know, from one successful experience, you gain more confidence too, because now you know that's the right approach. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. Well, Dana, thank you so much again for um, jumping on the call with me. I'm so glad I finally got to meet you in person. Yeah. Hopefully we get to actually meet once this whole, you know, COVID-19 situation is over. I know, I know. I need to get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's great meeting you too. And you got to stay in touch and keep me up to date. And I'll be listening for all your stuff. All your for sure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of today. If you like this podcast, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another great guest. We'd also appreciate it if you give us a five-star review on iTunes for the Apple listeners out there. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a spend management solution that is making managing business spend simple. I know there's still a lot of you that are using spreadsheets, credit cards, and expense forms, or a mix of the above. Perhaps you're still using a procurement module in your ERP that is clunky and outdated. Procurify helps you implement proactive controls so that purchases are tracked and approved by the right person before it hits accounts payable. Never have to worry about a surprise invoice ever again. There's a reason why over 400 customers around the world love us. Our award-winning, easy-to-use system is loved by people everywhere. It's actually a purchasing system that your employees will actually want to use, believe it or not. Check us out at Procurify.com, so that's www.procurify.com. P-R-O-C-U-R-I-F-Y dot com and mention the podcast for a sweet listener special on our packages.